Um, just a quick note before I jump into my message, um, if you have some end-of-year giving that you want to do, uh, sometimes people get bonuses and they want it to count um, towards 2021, just make sure anything that you give either this Sunday or next Sunday, you just postmark it. Uh, make sure it's postmarked by 1231. So if you, again, if you get something a little bit late, you want to postmark it, get that to myself. You can, we have a box up here, of course. Alan Mitchell uh, leads our finance team, so you can connect with him as well or just ask one of the leaders. We'll be happy to help you out. Uh, just wanted to make that note. Our accountant said I needed to tell you guys that. All right, so I'm going to jump in. I have a message this morning called A Little Jesus. <laughs> and so um, I thought long and hard about what to preach for... Um, for Christmas, and, and for me, I have to be careful not to be a little bit sarcastic about Christmas. Uh, part of it is, is because I really hate religion. Uh, that sounds funny coming from a pastor, doesn't it? But I really do hate religion, because religion has done probably more harm than good uh, in terms of just the, the man-made version of it, because religion ultimately defined is my attempt to get to know God and my attempt to know God, and Christianity is God's attempt to get to know you. So I, I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather, uh, I'd rather do it God's way than, than uh, man's way. So let me start by saying, uh, first of all, I want to apologize for quoting this famous Christmas prayer. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but still omnipotent. <laughs> Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God, amen. So most of you guys, if you know anything about Southern culture, you recognize the great dr driver, Ricky Bobby, and also philosopher. Um, but he had a friend named Cal who had an even better prayer and better concept of God. This is his, his uh, quote. Uh, obviously, it's a character, but this is what Cal said. He says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. Man, that is such a loaded statement right there. I can't even I can preach a whole series out of that one statement. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band, and I'm on the front row, and I'm hammered drunk. <laughs> so why would I bring that up at Christmas time? And obviously, I don't know about you, but I have gotten it wrong about God. I grew up in the South. I grew up uh, just outside of Birmingham um, until I was almost what, 19, 20 years old, and then I went overseas. I got some massive culture shock when I went and lived in England for about six years. But um, I grew up around religion. I grew up around kids who went to church all the time, and they would, they would recognize my sinfulness and want to help me out, but it was always mean. It, was, it always felt like they didn't really care about me so much as they cared about getting a notch on their gospel pistol, so to speak. Right? So they would say things like, uh, if you were to die right now, where would you go? And, my, and I would say it because this is my personality. I'd say, well, wherever it is, I, I don't want to be where you are. And I know that sounds hard, but my point was, I don't know if you, if, you, if you know it or not, but whatever you're saying about your God, you're not saying that with your lifestyle, right? Because I partied with these guys, and I hung out with these guys, and I knew their lifestyle, and they would say Jesus all the time, but they were like Cal. They had a party Jesus because they liked to party, right? And so somehow he's going to overlook. It's no big deal. You know, it's just, you know, sweep it under the rug. You know, he just understands our frailties. And so you go through this whole thing, right? And you, if you're not careful, what you do is you create a whole different Jesus. You get a little Jesus, not a whole big Jesus, right? And so that's what we have to be careful of. So the other day, um, it's funny, Dave mentioned in his testimony about uh, what the Lord means for good, right? Uh, what, or sorry, what the enemy meant for evil, God works for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So I was talking to a lady the other night. We were there in the emergency room visiting someone. And this lady, I, Karen went in, and I was there for a little while and uh, by myself, and this lady started talking to me. She was a security guard, and I hope she's watching. I, hope she, I was hoping she would come. I invited her to church. But she, she was telling me about her, her mother had had a car accident, very similar to what Dave's testimony about his dad, had a car accident, and, and she was hurt pretty badly, and so they brought her to the emergency room, and when they did all the testing, they found out she had like 90% blockage in one of her you know, major arteries or whatever, and so they, they did surgery on her and basically saved her life, and so she was telling me how thankful she was to God that he, you know, he caused that car accident so, so that he could save her life, and I was like, hold up, <laughs> hold up a second. That sounds to me like a, you know, a, a Leonard Skinner Jesus. So I, I didn't say that. I just, that's my point. I said, Jesus, God didn't 
caused the accident, right? We live in a fallen, so I gave her a little a bit of theology, right? And what I was trying to help her understand was she had this misrepresentation of who Jesus was, and I just wanted her to know. Now, I wasn't doing that to be mean, and a lot of times there's not enough time or relationship to have that conversation with someone, right? But at some point, if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to be honest, if I'm go, going to be a believer, if I'm going to represent Jesus to the world, right, represent him to the world, I've got to say things sometimes that are a bit challenging to the culture. And so I did that, and she was actually thankful. She said, you know, I never thought about that way. I said, I know. I get that a lot as a pastor. And I just want to encourage you that God is good, that we have an enemy who wants to, you know, the, the wreck was not, God was not saying, you know what, I'm going to almost kill your, your mom so I can save your mom from almost getting killed. Like, what sense does that make, right? But we put, that, we put this mindset so often into who Jesus is. And so, like Cal said, I like to party, so I, I like my Jesus to party, right? So you could put anything in there. I like to gossip, so I like my Jesus to gossip. You know, I like to sleep around, so yeah, I don't want to say that one, but right? Or but, but like, like an atheist would say, I like my Jesus not to exist, right? Because then I have zero responsibility to the Jesus of the Bible, right? So that's where we go. And maybe you've done this. I don't know if you've ever done this where you've misrepresented God to someone else or misrepresented him to yourself or someone's misrepresented him to you. But I have done this. And I just want to share something I did. I'm, I'm embarrassed that I did this. Not, this is not funny at all. I wish it were funny. I've done some dumb things before, but this one was just not helpful. So I, I was praying for a lady, a young lady who was in our church. This is in Tyler, Texas. And she was struggling with something really, really deep. She'd been in our church for a little while, and I was praying for her. And, and I said, how can I pray for you? At the altar call, I'm ministering to her. How can I pray, pray for you? And she became really, really vulnerable for the first time. And she said, I, I can't forgive my dad. And I said, what, you know, I mean, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to, but what, did he, what happened? Was it, how bad was it, right? And my thinking was, how bad could it be? Which is a really dumb question for a pastor to think, right? Because <laughs> I know how bad it can be. And it was worse than I could imagine. It was, it was sexual in nature. She was, you know, it was just a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And she left home when she was like 14 years old. It was terrible. And she was very, very broken. And I, I, I misquoted. I quoted something from the Old Testament into her life that the New Testament had, had given her hope. And the Old Testament was trying to take it away. And I'm going to explain that because this is where I, I quoted the scripture. It was Matthew chapter 6. And uh, it says, for if you forgive other people, this is Jesus talking. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, right, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I said that to her. And I'm, I'm ashamed that I said that to her. I really am. Because I, I didn't understand grace. I was quoting the Old Testament even though it was in the New Testament. And I've shared this, if you've been around DCF, I've shared this, Matthew 5 and 6. We make this out to be, you know, the greatest sermon that was ever preached in the Bible, and that's true in, in a lot of respects. But we forget that that sermon that Jesus preached, there's a part of it, Matthew 5, 17, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he, he changes the subject from the Beatitudes, and he starts talking about the law. And when he does... The rest of Matthew chapter 5 and the rest of chapter 6, he puts the law on steroids. What he's really doing is he's bringing the law back to its proper perspective because they had made the law palatable. They had created, the Jews had created a Leonard Skinner Jesus or a baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, whatever you call it. They had made the law palatable so that they could actually fulfill it. But they couldn't. And that's what Jesus spends the whole rest of that scripture saying. He says, unless you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not, you will no way, in no way see the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to happen, right? So there was no one who kept the law as good as the Pharisees, and that was his point. He said, you've got to exceed that because they're lying anyway. He goes on and he talks about that. He says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. What he was doing is he was making sure that we understood again that the law is impossible for you to follow. You're still required to, <laughs> but it's impossible for you to follow. And that makes no sense until you really begin to understand the gospel, that the gospel is not the bad news that you can't fulfill the law. It's the good news that someone fulfilled it for you, right? 
And so when we get that, it begins to make sense and it begins to unfold the story of humanity and the brokenness and everything. It begins to create a cohesive worldview that begins to make sense in every form or fashion. So I don't know about you, but I've misrepresented God and I did that. And, and, and here's the way I know this. I read later on as I grew, I read in Colossians 3, it says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Right? So it's not saying forgive or you won't be forgiving or forgiven. That was the Old Testament. That was the requirement, the perfect requirement of the law that you could never do. That was a Jesus point in Matthew 5 and 6. But in the gospel, after the gospel, after we understand Jesus paid the price on the cross, we come back to this and he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. So it's, it's not like you don't have to forgive people. It's just saying that the way you do it now is to recognize that you've been forgiven and it creates the ability for you to actually forgive, right? Another place, Ephesians 4 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. I mean, that's as clear as it can be about your behavior as a believer, as a new creation in Christ, right? These are the things that are expected of you because you have a new nature and you have a new heart. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another. In other words, put off the old stuff that, don't fit, that doesn't fit you anymore and put on the new things that do fit you. So put off bitterness, rage, anger. Put on kindness and compassionate, being compassionate to another one another. And this is what it says. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So in other words, because God has done something, you can do this. But see, I didn't understand that, so I was trying to live up to a God. I was trying to live up to a God that I didn't understand. I was trying to serve an Old Testament God. I was trying to please an Old Testament God, and he's not an Old Testament God. He's an All Testament guy, right? And it was a fulfillment. The Old Testament, you can't isolate it and leave it alone. You have to fulfill it, and that's what Jesus came to do. Born as a baby, he came to actually fulfill the law. So that you and I don't have to, we don't, it's, it's not that you don't have to live up to the requirements, it's that you just don't have to live up the requirements in your own strength because you can't. He comes and he wants to give you that. So I want to talk about that in a second. But here's the problem with Christmas. So, so often I have a problem with Christmas. is the tendency to romanticize the idea of Christmas, right? So I love Christmas. I am so not anti-Christmas. I mean, some of you guys were at our home on Friday night. You see the way my wife has decorated the house I held things while she, you know, decorated. I make sure something doesn't fall off while she puts everything together. So I didn't decorate my house, if you're wondering. Most of you guys are like, we weren't wondering, Dave. We knew better, right? (laughs) But I love it, actually. I love Christmas. I love the Christmas trees. I love that. I wish it would snow. I mean, it's almost snowing in here right now. Is anybody else cold? I'm a little bit chilly, right, this morning. It's because there's so so much humidity in in lower Alabama, right? So we got to turn the air conditioner on. Otherwise, we'll all be sweating in in mid-December, almost Christmas time. But I'm not anti-Christmas. I love Christmas. The challenge is we've made it about something. We've isolated it into something, created a baby Jesus, right? We've created this whole thing about God in our culture that doesn't really exist. And if we're not careful, we get caught up in it. And I don't have a problem with the baby in a manger. I love the story, Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. I love these stories, right? We read these stories to my nephews when they, when, whenever we do Christmas together. I just, I just love this. But the danger is we, senti- we, we get sentimental about it and we paint this nostalgic picture. Like, like how many of you guys say, you know, these young people today, I mean, the young people don't say that, but most of us, like, you know, <laughs> we're, over, we're over 50. It's like, those dang young people, get off my yard, right? And we're like, if you guys only knew how, oh, it's, it's, it's tough back then, but it was amazing too. It's like, it wasn't that amazing. We had, we had cars that didn't have air conditioners. All your young people are like, what in the whole world does that even mean, a car without an air conditioner, right? The air conditioning was 260, right? You roll the windows down going 60 miles an hour. And I, I, I mean, I'm just telling you, we, we, we rationalize and we sentimentalize and we make it nostalgic and we go into Christmas and if we're not careful, we're going to miss the real Jesus. We get a little bit of Jesus in the Christmas story and then it stops with him as a baby and it never moves on and we don't, you know, we don't move from Christmas to Easter. There's a big gap there. So I want to show you a couple of things. First, I want to show you how we get it wrong, just a couple of ways we get it wrong. And then I want to talk about how we can get it right and how we can move into this new year with a real Jesus. Not a little Jesus, but a lot of Jesus or the whole Jesus. So one of them was one way that we get this wrong, these myths of Christmas, if you will, just a couple of them, that there was a star the night was Jesus born. Jesus was born. Because you see this in the manger. There's always a star over the manger, right? Over the manger scene. How many of you guys know that's not actually what happened in the Bible? There's no indication that the star hovered over this place, right? But the Bible says 
this is Matthew 2. It says, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? So here's the, the wise men coming, and they're talking to King Herod. And he says, uh, they go on to say, for we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And then it goes on in another place, and it says it led them to Bethlehem, right? But we, we make the assumption that it was the night Jesus was born, and that's not what happened. There was a star um, there, was a, there was a star to the, to the shepherds, right? There was a bright light that came to the shepherds, and he led them there. The, the Bible says the angel told them, go to Bethlehem. This is where he's going to be born. And so they go, but the, ma- the magi come in later in the story. They come, and we know that because when, Herod is, when Herod's wanting to kill the, the new king that's being born, right? He says if, when, the, when the wise men get wind of it and they go home a different way, the Bible says that King Herod wants to kill all the boys two years of age and under. And so probably Jesus was somewhere between a year and 18 months at the time, which meant they stayed in Bethlehem um, for a while, right? Because they did come to Bethlehem and they did worship him. The other thing was that there were three wise men in this story. And it doesn't, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It just says there were wise men, but we get that. We sing the, the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, right? Um, but Matthew simply tells us in Matthew 2.1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So how did we get three wise men? Probably because they brought three gifts, or there were three gifts mentioned in the Bible, right? But we make that indication, and so, if, if, so it becomes legend, right? The three wise men becomes legend. And in our Christmas carols, there's always three wise men. I mean, Christmas play in the stories, in culture, and it produces, if we're not careful, this, and again, who cares, right? Whether it's three or four or two, it doesn't make any difference at the end of the day, except if we can get that wrong, what else might we get wrong about Christmas? And that's the danger. How about Jesus was born in a barn or a stable? We get this a lot. We see this, and, and again, some of the stories that, that we see in the Bible seem to lean into that direction. But let me just kind of explain this to you. Let me first read Luke 2, 7. It says, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cl- cloths and placed him in a manger. So we, we take that phrase and assume that it means he was born in a stable or born in a barn. But houses in that day, like I just thought about this Chris, uh, uh, at the Christmas party. I went outside to get something in the garage and it dawned on me that our houses are much like they were back then because back then they had an inside part where everybody kind of lived, right? And then it, there wasn't necessarily a door because, you know, it was harder to build walls. It took a lot more time. But there was also often an opening into the place where they brought the animals in in the evening. Not all the animals, but the working animals, right? So in, in some sense, the houses were kind of like an open floor plan sometimes into the barn area or into that area. And so more than likely what happened when they come in and there's no room at the inn, right? We hear this story, no room at the inn, that when they came into Bethlehem, that, um, that they were looking for their family because that's where they were from. And more than likely, they stayed in a home, right, of, a, of one of their family members. And there were so many family members that had come from everywhere to come to Bethlehem that it was so crowded that there was nowhere to lay the baby. Now, that's con- conjecture, but there's a compelling story. There's a compelling reasons why that's potentially true. So again, three or four myths that just pop up of what we might have gotten wrong that we just accept as the gospel in our culture, right? But why does that happen? Why do myths exist? And the answer is because the story's not easy. The story's actually complicated in some ways. The story's actually a really, really long narrative, and it's a big, 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 big story. So I want to show you three ways we've gotten it wrong about the when and the where of Christmas, and then I'm going to talk about the why and how when we get it right, it changes everything about Christmas. So let me talk about the when of Christmas. When was Christmas? The truth is we actually don't know. Some of you guys are like, man, you're giving us a downer on Christmas, man. You're, you're unsettling all these things. What I'm challenging us to do is to come back and read Scripture for what it actually says, not what we think it says or wish it says, because that's where we get in trouble. So there's lots of debate about when Christmas was. There's a the calendar changed in somewhere in 1582 from the Julian or Roman calendar into what they call the Gregorian calendar. And so somewhere along the ways, they were trying to create these calendars to be more accurate. And, and what they did was they got it wrong by about four years. So Jesus was born probably about 4 B.C., before Christ, <laughs> right? And the reason why we know that is because um, the Gospel of Matthew talks about Jesus born, he was born late in the reign of King Herod of Judea, who died in 4 B.C. In other words, Jesus was born in King Herod's reign, and King Herod, we know from, from history, was, was, he died in 4 B.C. So we know Jesus had to be born before the calendar actually starts at zero, right? 
It doesn't actually start at zero. It goes from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. So that's another way that we get it wrong. But here's, here's the important part. What does the, the Bible actually say about the when of Christmas? This is Galatians 4. It says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That matters. See, the Scriptures say these things because those kind of things matter. Why was he born under the law? It goes on, it says, to redeem or purchase back those who were under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And we sang about that during worship. He's a good, good father. We've been adopted. We've been received in because of what Jesus did. So does it matter about the day? Do we know the exact day? We don't. We don't even know if it was actually in the wintertime. <laughs> this disturbed me a little bit when I first read about this. But here's why it's important. It doesn't have to be exact. If the Bible withholds information, you know, we think of the Bible, we want it to be true, but the Bible was not necessarily written as a history book, even though it has history in it. And Luke was very careful in the, in the story, so was Matthew, but Luke especially was careful to name the rulers in the time of Jesus. Matthew does it in, in, in talking about King Herod. Why? Because Jesus was really born in history at a certain point. Right around 4 B.C., right? He was really born. It's not a legend. It's not something we made up. Jesus was really born into the earth. And it's not just from the Bible that we know that. There are numerous historians that are outside the Bible, extra-biblical historians, that speak to the truth of Jesus of Nazareth being a real person in human history. And the things that happened actually happened. Their testimonies of his resurrection in Josephus, was Josephus was a Jewish man who was a historian for the Roman Empire. He was not a good Jew, so to speak, in that day. And he wrote of the resurrection of Jesus. So it's true. These things are true, but we get it wrong. But does it matter? Romans 14, 5 says about days, about these certain things. It says one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In other words, if you celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day, or like we did, we opened our presents on Christmas Eve, which to some of you guys, is, you just don't do that, right? Don't, <laughs> but that's what we did. We celebrated the day before Christmas. So does the day matter? Not really. But here's what we do know. Things were bad, really, really bad in the culture when this was going on, when Jesus was born. There was something called the Pax Romana, which was forced peace. In other words, the Romans came in and said, you will have peace or we will kill you and we will have peace. <laughs> right? You think, you think we have challenges with our government. How would you like to sit underneath that kind of government? But here's the worst thing. Right up until the moment Jesus was born, because we read the story with eyes to see what happened before and what came after it, we have the beauty of context and they did not. And so for four Hundred years, people were in silence. They had not heard from God. There had not been an angelic visitation. There had not been a single prophet in 400 years. They were oppressed. They were broken. There was chaos in their land. They were being tortured. There was a rule that the Roman soldiers could ask you to carry their equipment for a mile. They could just conscript you and go, hey, carry all my stuff. And you're like, but I got I got to go. You don't have to go anywhere. You're going to carry my stuff. And if you don't, I'll just put a sword through you, and the next guy will be willing. That was the kind of environment they were in. Isaiah 9 2 talks about this. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So there's this massive silence. There's oppression. There's chaos. Families are being torn apart. I mean, you see this with, with uh, uh, Joseph and Mary having, being forced by the government to go and, 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 Fill out the tax forms in Bethlehem. you got to go to your city and do this, right, and pay your tax. It's like she's nine months pregnant. Don't care. What if she, what if she has complications on the way? Don't care. You're going to do what we say. This was the oppression. And the Bible says in this deep, deep darkness, a light shone. Something happened, this moment in history. Bam, God shows up on the scene as a baby, as a baby boy. And all of a sudden, everything begins to change. Doesn't that sound like today, though? Chaos. Everywhere we look, it's like, ah, oh, it's so, I don't know, has it ever been this bad? Yes, it has been this bad. It's been worse. <laughs> Go read history. It's been a lot worse than it is now, I promise you, right? They were tormented without air conditioning. We're tormented with it. So <laughs> it's a little bit different, right? But something happened. A light is dawned. It's broken through. The Bible talks about it arose. Something came up. It came up from nowhere. Where the light is, darkness cannot be. And this is the beauty of what Jesus did. 
So what about the where of Christmas? Scripture seems to contradict itself, right? Bethlehem, Nazareth, Egypt, where was Jesus born? And so often people go, you know, the Bible's not even clear where Jesus is born, so how can I trust it about my own salvation or about a way to live? So people use it, they justify it to say that God, you know, that the Bible's confusing, that it contradicts itself, but does it? This is, this is Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, the prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, this promise of Jesus the Messiah. John 7, 42, does not Scripture say this prophecy ahead of time that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from the city of Bethlehem? Nazareth, Matthew 2, 23 says, and he went and he lived in a town, this is Jesus, called Nazareth, and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So he's born in Bethlehem, he goes to Nazareth. What about Egypt? Matthew 2, 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. That's a whole other series about how God led him and how he wants to lead us. Stay there until I tell you. Go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. We know that was true because he, he made the edict to kill the baby boys, two and under. He says, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So why does the Bible go through such trouble to say he was from Nazareth, and he was from Bethlehem, and he was from Egypt? I mean, I looked at that the first time I saw it, and I was like, God, that, you're just giving people ammunition to not believe you, to, to be confused. I don't understand. It's like, why can't you just make it simple? I shared about the Roman road, right? You know, how do you lead somebody to Jesus? You just walk them down the Roman road. It's about four or five scriptures out of Romans that you tell them. And I remember somebody said, why did Paul even write the rest of Romans? We don't really need it, right? I mean, just need the Roman road to get people saved. That's actually a really good question. Why did he write the rest of Romans? Why should you take the time to read it? Why should you take the time to dig out of Scripture 2,000 years separated and 2,000 years separated and another culture? Because the story matters. It matters. It matters in a huge way. The statistical miracles of Jesus, I've talked about this. 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah or his times. And conservatively, I mean conservatively, Jesus fulfilled 300 of those Old Testament prophecies. Now why does that matter? 300 of them. Those three places, Jesus could not pick where he was going to be born. He became a refugee and went to Egypt. That's not something he could have chosen. Now, maybe later on he could have chosen. At some point, he's living in Nazareth. All of these things happen before he becomes a full-grown man, right? Before he has the ability to dictate what he's going to do. Three prophecies about where he was going to come from. God put it in there on purpose. Why? So it's an almost impossible to fake who the Messiah was going to be. Out of eight prophecies, I've mentioned this before, out of eight prophecies, just eight prophecies, the chance of eight prophecies coming through, and Jesus fulfilled at least 300 of them, right? Out of eight, the chances of that happening outside of being God in a miracle is 10 to the 17th power. That's 100 quadrillion. I had to look it up. I had no idea what this number was, right? Or one with 17 zeros behind it. Statistically, it is impossible for Jesus to have not been the Messiah. Impossible. So, so the, the Bible story is more than just this quaint little, beautiful little story, right? It's a story that matters. It matters because people's whole eternity is hanging in the balance based on not what Jesus did as a baby. That's just part of the story. But what happened all of the time before that in the prophecies and what God was saying it was going to be like and then how we were going to live that out. So what about the why of Christmas? This is really the most important thing. There's this really interesting passage. I mentioned it earlier about the innkeeper. The innkeeper says, you know, he gets, he gets vilified for all of eternity. The innkeepers, there's no room in the inn. <clears throat> no soup for you, right? <laughs> and so one guy preached this, and he said, <clears throat> what he really was saying, there was, no, there was no room in the innkeeper's heart. I was like, well, that, was, that makes for a good sermon, right? <clears throat> Probably he was just busy, and he didn't have time to talk to this you know, guy and his pregnant wife, right? Whatever. But, but think of what he missed, right? Had he made room for him in his heart or his end, what might have occurred that day. But here's what happens. So often we, we vilify this guy and don't realize that we don't give Jesus any room in our heart either, right? There's no room for him in this end, 
if I'm not careful. The, the, the struggles of life. The Bible talks about the cares of life. I, I got I a parent. I got to work. I, you don't understand how I got I, I got my nose to the grind, so you don't understand. Both of us have to work, and we don't have time to come to church on Sunday. We don't have time to read the Bible. We don't have to time. You have time. You have the same amount of time that the president runs the United States of America, right? He's got a bigger staff. Let's admit that. <clears throat> but the point is, is we all have the same amount of time. What we do with it is what matters. What becomes priority? What gets in front? What is preeminent is a decision that you and I have to make. And it's a decision. This is what's interesting. It's not a decision you just make on Sunday and go, you know what? I think I, sh- I should spend more time really connecting to the Lord and really understanding Scripture and really digging. I should be discipled more. I should take some time to disciple others. I should look into giving. I, I don't give. Maybe you should give. Right? What does the Bible say about giving? Is, is it all, you know, is, is it Dave just wants a better car? Or is there something going on here that God uses this money to change people's lives for all eternity? That's, that's the point is it's worth looking into. Everybody's in such a hurry. Jesus addresses this Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. This is what he says. Come to me, not your version of me. Right? Come to me. If you do this, if you come to the real Jesus, right? This is what he said. All you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a beautiful passage in the message, which is not a translation. It's, it's not a translation. It's more uh, a paraphrase, but this is what it says. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Right? Come, come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. The clothes I want to put on you, you were made to wear. You were made to be generous. You were made to be kind. You were made to be powerful. You were made to walk in the things of the Spirit. You were made to walk with the real Jesus. He said, come to me. There's a survey that came out recently that said 80% of Americans would call Jesus the Son of God, but... Only 40% believed that he was God, and only 40% believed that he was sinless. Now, why does that matter? That means 60% of those people who were polled believe in a Jesus who cannot save them. You hear that? So people have this concept. Listen, we're, if you're a believer this morning, thank God. But we have this, this opportunity, right, in, during Christmas time. And I'm not saying go out and just, you know, if you were to die right now, where would you go? Not helpful, don't do that, right? But the love and the mercy and the compassion and the kindness that you find found in the Lord, like when that lady shared with me that God had put her mother in a car accident, right? I just kindly said, I said, can, look, can I just make an adjustment to that as a pastor? Because I've heard that a lot. And the problem with that is that is ascribing to God what the enemy's trying to do in your life. And if, you, if we get that one thing wrong, then we, we look at our life and go, because I hear this all the time, well, that was just meant to be. No, it was not. Right? There's so many people. I pray all the time, God, open the door for more healing because we need the power of God to break through in our lives. Why? Because there's what we see in Scripture, we're not seeing in our lives the way we ought to see it in Scripture. Now, I'm not going to beat myself up on, and take grace away from that, but I am going to take personal responsibility and say, in my lifetime, I want to see an increase in people finding the power of God to set them free from their, their sickness so that people would believe that he would set them free from their sin, right? So I can't do that if I don't know the real Jesus, if I just go to church and if I just go through the motions. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion with a Savior? Every other religion, there's a way for you to save yourself. But do you know what we do as Christians so often? We paint the picture of the Bible and Scripture and of God and the story of, of, of the revelation of how God came to earth and what, he was, what He's all doing. We paint a picture that Jesus came, He did a great thing, He saved us, but now it's up to me, right, to live a good and righteous life so that God will accept me. And that is anti the gospel. And it puts people in bondage, right? So the little baby Jesus, eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus, can't even say a word right? Keeps me, it holds me in this romanticized, sentimental version of who Jesus is because I'm no longer responsible for what he actually said and what he did, what was prophesied about him and what he fulfilled. But if I get a hold of who he really is, 
First of all, my sins can be taken away. That's what the Bible says. Peace can come. Brokenness, hurt, that tiredness, that worn outness that religion brings to me can be broken over my life and I can come into this beautiful freedom of grace, right? But then there's a responsibility placed on my life to be a son, not just a baby son, but a grown-up son who takes on the mission and the call of the Father's business into the earth. That's what he's called you and I to do, for us to be disciples and to disciple others. Why? Because there's a mission that we're all on. So a little Jesus won't help us, (laughs) right? Baby Jesus won't help. Teenage Jesus won't help. Even bearded Jesus, whatever the heck that is, won't help. It has to be the real Jesus, a great big Jesus. So what was that about in Scripture? And the Bible says it in Matthew 121. It talks about the incarnation, that the God of the universe became a little baby in a manger, right? But he grew up and he took our sins upon us. Listen to this, Matthew 121. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, right? And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. It's a big story that we need to be paying attention to. The prophet said, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And like Karen was saying before, not just us where it's arbitrary or it's abstract or it's general, but specifically God will be with you. His heart and his longing is to walk with us in the cool of the day. And if you don't understand grace, if you don't understand this great big gospel, then you will push back against the real God because you think he's angry at you, you think he's punishing you, you think he's causing car wrecks to do you good, you think he gives cancer to babies, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And it's a travesty, and it's not the God that you and I serve. And it's not the real Jesus. Amen? John 1 says this, He came to that which was his own, and his own didn't receive him. That religious people so often can't even see the God that has come in to rescue them. This is what it says, though. Yet to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Such a beautiful, beautiful story. So let me close with this. This is Matthew's Christmas story. There weren't three kings in Matthew's story. There's only two. Let me read it to you. Matthew 2, 1 through 6. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi or Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? See the two kings? King Herod, king of the Jews, Jesus. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem, listen, don't miss this. Listen, let me say it again. When the king heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. We missed that part. The whole city of Jerusalem was disturbed by what these guys said was about to happen. That the star signified the Messiah was being born right here, right now, in our time. Right? I don't care how busy you are as a king. I don't care how busy you are running your business in Jerusalem. There is a Messiah that's been prophesied from old. He is coming and he's coming now. Right? And it goes on, it says, Um, When he had called together all the people's priests and teachers, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And this is what they said. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. See how it's tied into this massive narrative. And it goes on. It says, in Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, it says, verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Man, what a prophecy, right? But King Herod heard this, and he was immediately disturbed. And when the news got out that a king was being born, all of a sudden, the whole city was disturbed. They were disturbed. Jesus being born... Christmas is not just a pretty romanticized sentimental story. It is a clash of kingdoms. And it's powerful because it signifies something that is either true or it's not. Right? And it makes a difference. And you, when you understand this, you can't just go on living the way you were when you see this story. If you're intellectually honest, you can't do that. So there's three reactions that they had or that we can have. One is hostility. This is what you see the Jews doing, right? Sorry, one is indifference, which is what the Jews did, right? Indifference is, again, the chief priests, 
They heard, they knew the prophecy. They knew it like the back of their hand. That's why Herod called them. They knew the Bible. And he brings them before him. They said, hey, the star, these guys have come. What do you say about this? Where's the baby born? Right there. Listen to me. This is Jerusalem. Bethlehem is six miles away. Six miles away. And not a single one of them and not a single person in Jerusalem outside of the shepherds went to find out if it was true. Not a single person. The whole city was disturbed. King Herod was disturbed. Not a single person went to find out. It's not surprising these guys knew the answer to where the Messiah was going to be born. It's surprising to me that they didn't care. So what's the other way? Obviously, I said it was hostility. Why was, why was it that King Herod was so disturbed? Why were the people of Jerusalem so disturbed? You've heard of what's called the New Atheist. Guys like Dawkins and Hitchens, if you've been on the internet, if you read any books. Um, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, and he doesn't capitalize the G on purpose. God is Not Great. The subtitle is How Religion Poisons Everything, and that part of it I can agree with, <laughs> but probably not the way he means, right? In his book, chapter 7, he begins to talk specifically about the Bible. This is how he entitles it. Revelation, the nightmare of the Old Testament. He goes on in chapter 8 and he calls that the New Testament exceeds the evil of the old one. He goes on as an intelligent, brilliant man. If you can, go listen to some of the things he says. He's incredibly articulate, obviously very intelligent. This is what he says about the Gospels, though. He's so intelligent, but he's so foolish at the same time. He says, there are multiple authors, none of whom published anything until many decades after the crucifixion, cannot agree on anything of importance. But listen, in his own statement, he, he proves himself wrong because that's exactly what the gospel writers do. When it comes to the crucifixion, they all agree. Every single one of them. If you look into the Bible, you know that the gospels exist because there are four different perspectives of Jesus, right? But you actually have to study it with an open mind and an open heart to find out that to be true. Many of his assertions seem to be driven by literally ungrounded hostility. He writes in one place, The doings and sayings of Moses and Abraham and Jesus are so ill-founded and so inconsistent as well as so often immoral. He said that Jesus is immoral. Can you imagine the arrogance and the foolishness for a smart man to say that Jesus is, is, is immoral? If God doesn't exist, here's the thing, why write a book about it? Why do you care? But in that lies the answer. Why do you care? Because a great thinker knows that this problem of religion, this problem of Jesus, is the same problem that Herod had. If I'm the king and a new king is born, somebody's getting dethroned. Right? Somebody is going to have to submit. Submission is going to... Here's the thing. If Jesus is who he says he is, there are real implications. You can't just put up the, the lights and the Christmas tree and then take it down. My wife's going to love this. You have to leave it up all year long, right? <laughs> at least in your heart. Maybe not on the house, but at least in your heart, right? Why? This is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Here's the thing. This is not a nice Christmas story. It is a nasty conflict of kingdoms. But you are on the winning side if you're a believer in Christ. So what's the last thing you can do? This is my favorite. This is my, I love the baby Jesus, <laughs> but this is my favorite part about the baby Jesus, Matthew 2.11. This is the wise men coming, however many of them there were. It says, in going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshiped him. I am absolutely moved by that. You know why? Because I think about the journey. I think about the faith that it took to believe after 400 years of silence. These guys weren't even from Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem, they're six miles away from the, from the testimony, from the very prophecy that the Messiah would come, right? They're six miles away. And they have to have people, foreigners, come from another place, ride in. How, how many months it took to get to where they were? They're following a star, for goodness sake, right? And they go to the king and they bring their petition and say, we want to we find the newborn king. Why? Because we want to worship him and we think you should too. 
And so here's this beautiful picture of the contrast of the world and its indifference or its hostility to Jesus. And these wise men, however many there were, who came in, saw him first in faith and trusting and believing in a good God that he would send a Messiah to save his people from their sins. Not just the Jews, but the whole earth. They had not heard the gospel except in faith. You've heard the gospel both in faith and reality because we can look back through history and we can determine that Jesus really did live and that he had 300 prophecies that he fulfilled. There is no way for us to deny that Jesus was who he said he was. And I know that because that's what I did. When I discovered this, my heart was so open first of all, to the idea of it, but so afraid and so skeptical that I was going to get caught up in something that everybody just assumed was true, but it wasn't really. It was a nice thought. It was a beautiful story, but it's really just putting, it's putting Band-Aids over the real issues, and that's not what Jesus came to do. Let me just say this. He was born in Bethlehem of a virgin to know what it means to be among us. Remember, the why of Christmas is he came to be with us. He came to be with us. He died in our place for our sin and brokenness to become a sacrifice for sins and the sins of many. He pursued us. He chased us down. He came to us when we were lost and undone and broken and shaking our tiny little baby fists at the great big God. He gave himself for us when we were the most unlovable people around. He doesn't just love you. He wants you. And he paid a huge price so that he could have you. I want to I read this last scripture, and I want to pray for us. Um, this just came up in, in prayer time. I wasn't planning on preaching this, but it, it makes sense now. This is Matthew 12, 20. This is what Jesus is promised. This is what promised about the Savior. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. So what does that mean? There was a sense in prayer time that there were some of us here this morning who were just that. We're a bruised reed. We've had a tough go of it. We've had losses. We've had brokenness. We've had things happen. We've had the enemy come against us in a way that circumstances are telling us God's not good. And, and it's like you're in a storm or like the river's flowing so hard that you're a reed and you're bent over and you're on your last leg and you don't know if you can make it through one more storm. And you're almost there. Or you're literally a smoking flax. That, that means the candle basically has been, has been blown out, but there's still a little bit of smoke, and there's still the potential and the hope that given a little bit more oxygen, then it could burst back into flame again. And I feel like this morning that that's some of us. And so Jesus did not come to stay in a manger. He came, and he lived a beautiful life where he did everything that the law required of him so that you and I didn't have to live up to the standard because someone did it for us. And then he gave us a new heart and a new nature. Because he's good, he wants to co-labor and co-work with us. And we want to co-inherit with Jesus what has been made available because of the cross. That's a series I just preached. The only way that's going to happen is to lean into the real Jesus and say, God, if you're good, and I want, I want, I want you to pray this this morning. If you're struggling what, where I think many of us are, Jesus, if you're really real, would you come to me? And would you straighten out this reed that I am? Would you blow wind into this candle, enough oxygen that it can catch flame again? Would you revive me again? So would you stand with me? I want to pray. If that's you, um, I want you to close your eyes because I think this is helpful. If, that's, if, that, if you feel like that's you this morning, if you just close your eyes, just raise your hand just slightly. If you feel like that's me, I'm a, I'm a reed. that I feel like I'm on the edge of being broken. If that's you or, or I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a smoking flax that's almost gone out, if that's you, would you just raise your hand? Anybody in the room? Just give you a second. Anybody? Maybe it's somebody online. I just really feel strongly that that's somebody here tonight, today. But I want to pray for us as we close. I just want to pray and, and, and invite Jesus, the real Jesus, into this moment, into the brokenness, into the hurting, into the hope, and let him just breathe life into us again. So Jesus, we just come, and Lord, we say we humble ourselves before a mighty king. Lord, you're no longer a baby in a manger. 
You were. You were vulnerable. Lord, you literally trusted humanity to take care of you. I can't, I can't wrap my head around that, that you trusted Joseph and, and, a, and a teenage girl, Lord, to, to take care of you, to obey the prophecy, the, the, the dream that would cause them to literally go into a foreign country and be refugees away from their homeland. God, you would bring them home, that someday, Jesus, you would be on the cross and you would look down at your mother and, and you would recognize her brokenness and her hurting and her pain because she's about to lose her son. And you asked John if he, would, if he would be a son to her and look after her. Lord, your, your heart and your compassion and your kindness, even in the most broken place, Jesus is overwhelming. So, Lord, we just submit ourselves to you again and afresh and anew and say, Lord, be real to us. Be the whole Jesus. Be a big, big God in our lives, Lord that we begin to lean in and take the time to lean into who you are and what you're calling us into, not just individually, but as a body, Lord, to reach out into the people, into this city, Lord, the people into this region, Lord, and, and where darkness has fallen and it's broken and hurting people, Lord, behind closed doors that we don't see and they put on a beautiful face. But, Lord, you said that light has arisen, a light has shone. Lord, and it's represented in the story of Jesus, the story of a baby being born and a star in Bethlehem and all those things. But Lord, it's coming through our lives speaking into somebody else. Lord, would we be you into a broken and a dark, dark world? Would we represent you in a beautiful way? So Lord, we give ourselves afresh and anew, Lord, as we go into this new season of our life, Lord, the brokenness in our world all around us, Lord, but we, lit, we lay it all down. We say, Jesus, we trust you to bring light where there was darkness, Lord, to bring wholeness where there was brokenness. We trust you. And Lord, if there's somebody here or online hearing this and they feel like they're a broken, almost a broken reed, Lord, would you just breathe hope into them again, breathe life into them again, Lord, and cause them to come afresh, come anew, Lord, to rise up again, to arise, Lord, again just like you did in our own hearts. Lord, we trust you for that, Lord. Would you be that hope? Would you be that goodness in our lives as we go forward? Lord, would you be a reminder, Lord, that you are our peace, that you are our goodness, Lord. We trust you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, we would love to pray for you guys. Uh, We'll have a team up here who would pray for you if you're online and you'd like prayer, just go to our website and connect with us and we'll, we'll definitely connect with somebody. Have someone connect with you and pray with you. Come forward if you need prayer. Otherwise, have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Christmas week. Amen.